Hi, and welcome to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we discuss current legal and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a finance partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. We hope from wherever you are listening, you are safe and healthy. While the world has been busy battling COVID-19, it's been making startling progress in an area that has held a lot of promise, but was struggling at times to gain traction digital securities and virtual currencies. What just a couple of years ago seemed like a wild west of scams and frauds has quickly been evolving into a mature, efficient alternative of capital raising and trading that has been embraced by traditional financial institutions and governments alike. With me today to chat about these developments is a leader of our fintech practice and head of our derivatives and structured products group, Daniel Badofsky. Hi, Joel, and uh, thanks for inviting me here today. First, Dan, I'm interested to hear about cryptocurrencies. Just recently, Goldman Sachs stated that Bitcoin is just a bubble that dwarfs all other bubbles, including historic manias like the Tulip and dot-com bubbles. What can you tell us about that? Well, uh, they do say that. Um, And here's a little background to put that in perspective. The first generations of virtual currencies like Bitcoin are just digital representations of value that act as a medium of exchange. And although they can sometimes be exchanged for U.S. dollars or for other fiat currencies, they're generally not backed by a government or central bank like fiat currency is. So their value is basically driven by supply and demand. And as a result, they tend to be much more volatile than traditional fiat currencies. Um, Although, interestingly, there are some signs that cryptocurrency is transitioning to a new phase. First, we are seeing a lot of development activity in so-called stable coins. These are virtual currencies that are tethered to or otherwise linked to an existing fiat currency or some other asset like gold or oil. And this linkage or support is designed to dampen the volatility. So the highest profile example of this has been Facebook's Libra project. Originally, that Libra project was going to be a single digital currency tied to a basket of short-term government securities and bank deposits from different countries. But after receiving this regulatory pushback, Facebook modified its plan. And now we understand that the plan is to issue multiple virtual currencies, each tied to a single currency. The Libra story actually leads to a second important development, in addition to the development of stable coins. As Federal Reserve Governor Lael Brannard put it, the Libra project, quote, unquote, imparted urgency to the conversation among central banks around launching digital currencies that will be sponsored by central banks. And in fact, six countries now have central bank digital currency pilot programs in place. The U.S. is lagging, but working on it. That's very interesting, Dan. Uh, Which countries are leading the charge? China, for one, and this is a good example. The People's Bank of China recently launched a pilot program of its own digital currency known as Digital Currency Slash Electronic Payment, or DCEP. So moving now from digital currencies to digital securities, Dan, have there been many developments in the past few months? It has been so busy, Joel. Apparently, crisis is the mother of innovation. Essentially, what we're seeing in the United States are two related trends. One, what I think is the death rattle of the FAST, which, uh, as I know you know, is an acronym which stands for Simple Agreement for Future Tokens. 
and ICOs, another acronym for initial coin offering. These were wildly popular, although frequently illegal, uh, in the years 2017 to 2018. Um, and the second trend is, I think, the transformation of the underlying technology into an infrastructure for digital securities that's designed to be fully compliant with existing regulations. A key insight is that private companies who are looking for liquidity in the face of the current economic crisis uh, due to COVID, for those companies, digital securities can offer an attractive and efficient way to raise funds and for investors to quickly and efficiently trade their financial assets. Can you quickly walk us through that history, Dan? Sure. Obviously, what I'm about to say is a huge oversimplification, but I think of this advancing in several stages. First, you have the seminal idea of distributed ledger and its incarnation in Bitcoin. And for some people, this was just a new form of electronic money, but I think it would be naive not to remember that for some people, Bitcoin was an extremely political project. It was viewed as a means of creating a new society where economic power would reside outside and beyond the control of the state and the banking institutions and the financial sectors, which some, as you may recall, saw as evil. And in this new world of those, um, the state and the banking institutions, the financial sectors would be vanquished. Next in the um, uh, stages of development, is the layering on of so-called smart contracts on top of the basic uh, distributed ledger technology. And we saw in that phase, technology developers primarily seize on the idea of initial coin offerings or ICOs as a way to raise capital for blockchain projects in what they thought was essentially an unregulated transaction. The instrument of choice starting in 2017 was the SAF, which is a tweak of the SAFE, um, or uh, which is an acronym for Simple Agreement for Future Equity, that it's a very popular way for startups in Silicon Valley to quickly raise funds even before they do their Series A round. Basically, investors paid dollars for Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency at inception for the right to receive digital tokens, typically at a discount later, once the digital platform that they were working on that and that supported the token was launched. Already by mid 2017, the SEC had begun to make clear that the vast majority of these ICOs were good old fashioned securities offerings that needed to comply with the securities laws. Um, and in April 2019, uh, two years later, the SEC issued its framework for investment contract analysis of digital assets, which is essentially, um, a tool to help market participants apply the Supreme Court's Howey test to digital assets to determine whether um, those assets are securities or not. And you say that we're hearing the death rattle of the SAFT and the ICO. What's that all about? Well, a major case came out of the Southern District of New York this year in which the SEC shut down the distribution by a messaging company called Telegram of their tokens, which they call TUNS. C-O-N-S, uh, which had been the subject of SAC uh, that were issued several years ago. And the court accepted the SEC's argument uh, in the second uh, in the Southern District that the distribution of the tokens was an illegal 
unregistered sale of securities. More surprisingly, the court found that the original placement of the SAF, which had been purportedly done as a Regulation D private offering, was merely part of a unified public underwriting of the token and failed to qualify for the private placement exemption. And the SEC has made the same argument in its case uh, against the Canadian messaging company, KIC. And all eyes are now on other existing and outstanding SAFs, such as Filecoin, which is another project that was sold through a SAF, to see if those projects will escape SEC uh, lawsuits or third-party investor lawsuits. So then what's the phoenix arising from the ashes of the SAFT? We are seeing the construction of a distributed ledger-based infrastructure to support digital tokens that are compliant with security law. In other words, we're seeing the infrastructure being developed for securities tokens. This infrastructure will include primary issuances of digital securities, the custody of of those digital securities, secondary trading of those digital securities, and ancillary but necessary services such as transfer agents and record keeping. And most importantly, perhaps, we're seeing the support for such infrastructure coming from traditional financial institutions. And how are those financial institutions getting involved in this, Dan? Well, for me, this is really the most interesting aspect of the market development. For example, in April of this year, DTCC came out with proposals for digitalization of assets contained in two case studies that they published. One of those, called the Project Whitney, is all about tokenization of securities and assets as a way for private companies to access Main Street investors for capital. And this is particularly important as private companies stay private longer, uh, fewer um, uh, IITOs, and their need for additional capital. And we're also seeing the build-out of the secondary market with exchanges like NASDAQ joining forces with the digital company R3. And we've seen the Boston Security Token Exchange getting very close to being approved by the SEC for a secondary security token exchange. So all of these developments, in my mind, signal the U.S. institutional investors that with real financial institutions such as these getting behind digital assets, the market may now be mature enough or getting mature enough for them to fully embrace using blockchain to issue and trade financial securities. Well, that certainly is a dramatic turn of events in a relatively short period of time, Dan. It's great to see the potential for a new source of liquidity developing at this time when more conventional avenues are filled with uncertainty and hesitation. I guess we'll have to stay tuned on this one. Thanks so much for your insights today, Dan. It's been a pleasure to join you today, Joe. And now, for this week in history, we celebrate two landmark pieces of legislation. On June 8, 1789, James Madison introduced a proposed Bill of Rights to the U.S. House of Representatives. And on June 13, 1866, Congress passed the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which subsequently was interpreted to extend the Bill of Rights to apply to the states. Together, 
The Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment changed the course of American history, and today they call upon us to remember the ideals on which American democracy is based. To all of you tuning in, thank you for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast.